everyone, and welcome to the December 5th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skarn & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The California Supreme Court handed down a landmark decision that opened the door for litigation by close family members of workers exposed to workplace toxins who are now able to sue their employers. Plaintiffs in these two consolidated actions for personal injury and wrongful death allege that take-home exposure to asbestos was a contributing cause to the death of Johnny Kestner and Lynn Haver, and that the employers of Johnny's uncle and Lynn's former husband had a duty to prevent this exposure. In the first case, Johnny Kestner was diagnosed with mesothelioma in February of 2011. He filed suit against a number of defendants he believed were responsible for exposing him to asbestos and causing his mesothelioma. Johnny's uncle, George Kessner, worked at the Abex plant in Winchester, Virginia for much of George's life, where George was exposed to asbestos fibers released in the manufacture of brake shoes. According to George, Johnny spent an average of three nights per week at his uncle's home and would sometimes sleep near George or roughhouse with George while George was wearing his work clothes. Johnny alleged that his exposure to asbestos dose from the Abix plant carried home on his uncle's clothes and contributed to his contracting his fatal mesothelioma. In the companion case, Lynn Haver was diagnosed with mesothelioma in March of 2008 and died a year later. Her children filed a wrongful death and survival action, alleging that Lynn's exposure to asbestos was by way of her former husband, Mike Haver, and it caused her cancer and death. Mike was employed by the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway. In his position as fireman and hostler, Mike was exposed to asbestos from pipe insulation and other products. The Havers alleged that Mike carried home these asbestos fibers on his body and clothing and that Lynn was exposed through contact with him and his clothing, tools, and vehicle after she began living with him. Neither the Havers nor Kestner's suit reached a jury as a result of the holding in the 2005 case of Campbell versus Ford Motor Company, which held that a property owner has no duty to protect family members from secondary exposure to asbestos. The California Supreme Court granted review in both cases and reversed the dismissal of the cases in the landmark case of Kessner versus Superior Court. The Supreme Court held that the duty of employers and premises owners to exercise ordinary care in their use of asbestos includes preventing exposure to asbestos carried by the bodies and clothing of on-site workers, where it is reasonably foreseeable that workers, their clothing, or personal effect will act as vectors carrying asbestos from the premises to the household members. Employers have a duty to take reasonable care to prevent this means of transmission. This duty also applies to premises owners who use asbestos on their property, subject to any exceptions and affirmative defenses generally applicable to premises owners, such as the rules of contractor liability. Importantly, the Supreme Court held that this duty extends only 
to members of a worker's household because the duty is premised on the foreseeability of both the regularity and intensity of contact that occurs in a worker's home. It does not extend beyond this circumscribed category of potential plaintiffs. The obvious question that arises out of this decision is what other types of toxic claims will follow, or will this case be strictly limited to asbestos exposure? If not limited only to asbestos, the potential for this case to open a Pandora's box of secondary claims by immediate family members of workers injured by toxic materials in the workplace will no doubt follow. These secondary claims will not be limited to workers' compensation by the exclusive remedy rule, and it is unclear what insurance, if any, will be responsible for indemnification. A federal jury in Dallas ordered Johnson & Johnson and its DePuy Orthopedics Unit to pay more than $1 billion to six California plaintiffs who said they were injured by its pinnacle hip implants. The jurors found that the metal-on-metal -metal implants were defectively designed and that the companies failed to warn consumers about the risks. J&J, &J, which faces more than 8,000 similar lawsuits over the hip implants, said it would immediately appeal the verdict. The six plaintiffs awarded more than $1 billion are California residents who were implanted with the hip devices and experienced tissue death, bone erosion, and other injuries they attributed to these design flaws. They claimed the companies promoted the devices as lasting longer than devices that included ceramic or plastic materials. The total verdict of slightly more than $1 billion included $32 million in compensatory damages. The rest were punitive damages. Verdicts of such size are often scaled back by the courts. In July, the same judge providing over this case reduced a $500 million verdict in an earlier Pinnacle implant case to only $151 million, citing a Texas state law that limits putative damage awards. J&J &J and DePoy have been hit with nearly 8,400 such lawsuits over the devices, which have been consolidated in Texas federal court. Test cases have been selected for trial, and their outcomes will help gauge the value of the remaining claims. The recent verdict came in the third test case, with the second producing the earlier $500 million verdict. J&J &J and Dupuy were cleared of liability in the first test case in 2014. The company rejected a $1.8 million settlement offer in this case from the plaintiffs before trial. The plaintiffs in the second test case have appealed the court's decision to cut the award. Johnson & Johnson have also appealed the jury verdict in that case. DePoy ceased selling the metal-on-metal -metal pinnacle devices in 2013 after the U.S. Food and Drug Administration strengthened its artificial hip regulations. The companies also paid $2.5 billion that year to settle more than 7,000 lawsuits over its ASR metal-on-metal -metal hip devices. The ASR devices were recalled in 2010 due to high failure rates. The Court of Appeal ruled that the exclusive remedy protection does not apply to co-workers who injured an employee during a training robbery. 
Here's what happened in the published case of Lee versus Western Kern Water District. Kathy Lee was employed as a cashier for West Kern Water District, working behind a partition where customers came to pay their water bills, often in cash. She sued the district and four co-employees for assault and intentional infliction of emotional distress after the co-employees staged a mock robbery with Lee as the victim. The district provided its employees with some training on how to respond to a robbery. And four supervisors allegedly formed a plan to test how well the district's female employees would respond if they believed they were really being robbed. In the mock robbery, one of the district managers entered the district's office in a mask and confronted Lee at the cashier's window with a note demanding money and saying that he had a gun. Lee, who had not been informed of the planned mock robbery, handed over the money and subsequently was treated for a psychiatric injury. Lee claimed her lawsuit that even if the facts satisfied the labor code conditions for an exclusive workers' compensation remedy, she should still recover the assault exception because of the assault exception of the labor code applied. A jury instruction was allowed that said an employer conduct is considered outside the scope of the workers' compensation scheme when the employer steps outside of its proper role or engages in conduct unrelated to the employment. The jury awarded her $360,000. However, the trial court granted a motion for a new trial. The trial court reasoned that the jury should have been told the exclusivity rule applied unless Lee established the assault exception. But the order granting a new trial was reversed by the Court of Appeal in the published case. The Labor Code lists three exceptions to the exclusivity rule, one of which applies where the injury is caused by a willful physical assault by the employer. The converse of the exclusivity rule says that ordinary civil remedies apply to injuries falling outside of the workers' compensation system. A Fresno jury has awarded more than $600,000 to a respiratory therapist who said she was wrongfully terminated at a sleep medicine center because she blew the whistle on Medicare fraud. 51-year-old Tansi A. Casillas alleged that her employer, Central California Faculty Medical Group, eliminated her position in retaliation for the fraud complaint she made and for refusing to perform medical services outside the scope of her respiratory care license. The medical group has a multi-specialty practice affiliated with the University of San Francisco in Fresno. It operates several medical offices for pulmonary and sleep medicine. In her lawsuit, Casillas said doctors left the responsibility to her to have face-to-face -face evaluations with patients on continuous positive airway pressure devices known commonly as CPAP machines. The patient and Medicare were later billed for a doctor's visit, even though the patient was not seen by a doctor. The medical group's compliance department investigated Casillas' claims and found the medical group had erroneously billed Medicare, but that no fraud had occurred. And the medical groups reimbursed Medicare for the overcharges. But the jury found Casillas had been retaliated against for being a whistleblower and awarded her 
$200 in economic and emotional damages, and $500,000 in punitive damages. The faculty medical group argued that Casillas was terminated for economic reasons that were aggravated by her bad behavior in interacting with her co-workers. But Casillas argued that the medical group falsely accused her of violating the company's conflict of interest policy as part of its retaliation for being a whistleblower. Casillas had worked for the faculty medical group since 2008 and had received good performance evaluations before her whistleblowing. The jury found that Casillas' disclosure about the Medicare fraud and her refusal to participate in medical services outside the scope of her respiratory care license were contributing factors in the decision to discharge her. And in regulatory news, the U.S. Senate voted overwhelmingly to support sweeping legislation that will reshape the way the Food and Drug Administration approves new medicines. It will also provide funding for cancer and Alzheimer's research, help find the opioid epidemic, expand access to mental health treatment, and advance research into precision medicine. And the 21st Century Cures Act was also passed last by the House of Representatives and will now go to President Obama to sign. Supporters say it will speed access to new drugs and devices in part by allowing clinical trials to be designed with fewer patients and cheaper, easier-to-achieve goals. Critics of the legislation say it gives massive handouts to the pharmaceutical industry and will lower standards for drug and medical device approvals. Even so, the bill passed in the Senate by a vote of 94 to 5, and in the House it passed by a vote of 392 to 26. The act authorizes $4.8 billion for the National Institutes of Health and $500 million to the Food and Drug Administration. It also calls for $1 billion over two years to battle the opioid epidemic. Critics say that the money described in the bill must be appropriated by separate funding bills and that the money may ultimately never materialize. Yet, the changes to the clinical trial process, something long sought by the drug industry, will be set in stone regardless of whether money for the research projects is appropriated. Under the new law, greater prominence will be given to real-world evidence gathered outside the framework of a randomized, controlled clinical trial, the gold standard for determining whether a drug is safe and effective. Such evidence could be much easier for drug companies to collect. A new study by the Workers' Compensation Research Institute says that SB 863 contributed to decreases in medical payments. According to the study, medical payments per claim decreased 4% in 2013 and then 3% in 2014 for claims with more than seven days of lost time, mainly driven by decreases in payments per claim for non-hospital services. California's experience differed from most of the other 17 states. WCII studied, since in many states medical payments per claim grew, from 2012 to 2014. And thus they conclude that the decrease in medical payments per claim in California likely reflects the impact of SB 863 provisions. 
Starting in 2014, the law began phasing in the use of a fee schedule based on Medicare's resource-based relative value scale for professional services over a four-year period. And prices paid for primary care services increased while prices paid for specialty care decreased in 2014 and 2015. The new law also reduced the fee schedule rates for services at ambulatory surgical centers, with the average payment per claim decreasing 27%. Other reform provisions include eliminating separate reimbursement for implantable medical devices, hardware, and instruments for spinal surgeries. It also requires a $150 fee to file liens against an employee's workers' compensation benefits and a $100 activation fee for liens already filed and establishing an independent medical review process. The Workers' Compensation Appeals Board has issued a notice of public hearing regarding a proposed addition and amendments to its rules of practice and procedure. New law in January requires lien claimants to file an original bill and a declaration that includes information regarding the type of services provided by the lien claimant. A lien claimant's failure to timely file this declaration shall result in the dismissal of the lien with prejudice by operation of law. To effectuate these legislative changes, the WCAB proposes amending the rules of practice and procedure on lien claims. This rulemaking will mandate the use of an e-file declaration form in order to ensure uniform procedures for lien claimants. The public hearing on this amendment is scheduled for Wednesday, January 4 at 10 o'clock a.m. in the Milton Marks Conference Center, Santa Barbara Room of the Hiram Johnson State Office Building located at 455 Golden Gate Avenue in San Francisco. Members of the public may also submit written comments on the proposed rules amendments until 5 o'clock p.m. that day. The notice, draft regulations, text, and initial statement of reasons are posted online. And in medical news, reserving estimates for claims with lifetime awards have been a complex task. And for years, the assumption has been that the life expectancy of claimants will continue to increase, thus requiring higher reserves and ultimately higher claims costs. Similarly, the price for annuities and Medicare set-aside trusts have been based upon an assumption that life expectancy will continue to increase. In most of the years since World War II, life expectancy in the U.S. has indeed inched up thanks to medical advances, public health campaigns, and better nutrition and education. But according to a study just released by the Centers for Disease Control, last year it slipped, an exceedingly rare event in a year that did not include a major disease outbreak. Other one-year declines occurred in 1993 when the nation was in the throes of the AIDS epidemic and in 1980, the result of an especially nasty flu season. Now in 2015, rates for eight of the ten leading causes of death rose. Even more troubling to health experts, the U.S. seems to be settling into a trend of no improvement at all. Gender matters. For males, life expectancy fell to 76.3 years from 76.5 years. For women, life expectancy decreased to 81.2 years, about a tenth of a year lower than 2014. 
The culprits for our declining years were increases in mortality from heart disease, chronic lower respiratory disease, unintentional injuries, stroke, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, kidney disease, and suicide. Not surprisingly, that group puts cancer and Alzheimer's disease make up the top 10 causes of U.S. deaths. Heart disease and cancer are the runaway top killers. Heart disease rates are probably a function of the U.S. obesity epidemic. Obesity is also blamed for increase in the rates of hypertension, diabetes, and the other heart-related problems. But some researchers are also pointing to upticks in suicides and drug use as potentially contributing factors. And the United States ranks below dozens of other high-income countries in life expectancy. Expectancy is highest in Japan at nearly 84 years. The workers' compensation industry is always interested in better medical outcomes for injured workers. What is difficult is to set standards for what measures and quantifies a better outcome. Holding a treatment physician accountable for a treatment outcome starts and ends with a competent outcome measure used throughout the treatment process. In scientific terms, this is known as the pretest and post-test assessment model. Simply stated, measure the attributes to be treated before anything is done, then perform the medical or surgical intervention, then measure the outcome to see if it worked. In this way, you can circumvent vague, generalized, sweeping medical chart entries such as, the patient came in today much improved. Orthopedic surgeons traditionally rely on x-rays, MRI, CT scans, physical measurements, and functional tests for patient outcome assessments. But according to research published in the Journal of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, this is changing thanks to new technology that communicates ongoing real-time outcomes feedback from patients. Two studies described in the benefits of the National Institute of Health Patient Reported Outcomes Measurement Information System to objectively and quantifiably assess and track patient symptoms over time. The acronym for this tool is PROMISE, P-R-O-M-I-S. PROMISE also evaluates the impact of surgical and non-surgical interventions using the same system to compare and contrast treatment outcomes options. The system fosters shared physician-patient decision-making and is proving superior to legacy measures. It has been validated in patient populations with orthopedic disorders of the foot and ankle, upper extremity, and spine. Until now, patient outcome scores were evaluated almost exclusively for research purposes. But the data are becoming more valuable in helping doctors and patients assess clinical progress and recovery from surgery. Typically, patients answer surveys in the doctor's office on iPads and other responses go to data warehouses for scoring and near-immediate transmission to the physician. These surveys collect responses on pain, levels of disability, daily function, and overall quality of life, which are then compared with hundreds of other patients with the same disease or injury. This allows doctors to accurately project what to expect in the patient's future. 
Use of patient-reported-outcomes data is expanding rapidly in orthopedic practices for tracking and assessing patient progress following surgery and also for determining whether surgery is the most appropriate option. And in other news, it is with great sadness that we announce the passing of applicant's attorney David Wallace Ashton of the law firm of Milburn and Ashton. He was born March 3rd in 1956 and was 60 years of age when he died from cancer on December 1. His offices have provided legal services to the residents of the Antelope Valley and surrounding communities for more than 30 years. He was very well respected in the workers' compensation community. Mr. Ashton graduated from California Polytechnic State University, San Luis Obispo, with honors in 1978. He obtained his master's degree in education from Azusa Pacific University and his Juris Doctor from the University of Laverne in 1992. He was admitted to the State Bar of California in 1992 and to the United States Federal District Court in 1993. Mr. Ashton has been practicing workers' compensation law for over 20 years, primarily before the Van Nuys, Bakersfield, and San Bernardino Workers' Compensation Appeals Board. He was an active member of the California Applicants' Attorneys Association, the Antelope Valley Bar Association, and the State Bar of California. Mr. Ashton had extensive trial and litigation experience before the WCAB and the Central District California Court of Appeals. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.